And Jeremiah emailed me asking which, which topic I'd like weeks ago, and I chose reconciliation because I didn't want to talk about it, which is always a good practice for me because um, I knew it would be good for my soul. And I had these ideas, and those ideas were not where I ended up landing because reconciliation has become one of those, like when you hear a church that says, we want to be about the work of reconciliation, I feel like in our world today, all of our antennas go up appropriately so. Okay, what do you mean by that? Because reconciliation has become like a buzzword that at times has lost its punch and been abused so much that we start to, like we're like, reconciliation, evangelicals, where are we going with this, right? Like we've all, like we, we've seen too many times the idea of reconciliation being kind of like held over the head of somebody who's been victimized by an institution or a relationship where there's a power dynamic and there's just this call to reconcile. And that, it, it, it feels backwards. It feels gross. It feels upside down. Because that's not really reconciliation when that power dynamic is never addressed. It's just actually getting rid of something that needed to be held accountable. Or you hear the word reconciliation when we talk about racial justice. And it's a word that used to be used all the time, and over the last 10, 15, 20 years, we've stopped even using the word because of how we just kind of flippantly throw it, ab- throw it about. Like we're going to have even, even like great efforts to be educated and to pursue racial justice. But, but it just kind of sits there and kind of hums on the surface, and we call it reconciliation because the real work's going to have so much more substance. It's going to need to be so much deeper than simply Eight weeks spent in whatever, you know, like I'm, I'm seeing so many nods and that's very encouraging to me. Reconciliation is a hard word to talk about in church. And yet it's, it's a word that's all throughout the scriptures. So let's acknowledge before we even get started today that when we're done today, we will not have done the work of reconciliation. We will merely have started yet one of hopefully many conversations about who we want to be, but the work will be deep work, it will be long work, it will be work that we will have to give ourselves to, and it will go on for generations, because that's the not yet, the here but not yet kingdom reality that we live in. Jeffrey mentioned that earlier in worship. How do you sing everything that you have made is beautiful? How true that song is, amen? And at the same time, Every hour I need thee, because we live in this broken world of goodness. A world that is essentially good, but a world that's also torn asunder, and we live in the midst of that. And we have experienced those abuses, we have been the abuser, we have participated in rebellion, and we experience the results and the consequences and the circumstances of that rebellion all the time. We want to be a church about reconciliation, not a fun statement on a website, but the real, true, deep, meaningful work. We want reconciliation to be something that defines our marriages and our families. We want reconciliation for things in our community. We want reconciliation as just a community of God's people a community of evangelicalism. We want reconciliation for our nation. We want reconciliation for our world. That's not something we do in 32 minutes. But maybe we can remind ourselves this morning of a work that we're called to. 
So uh, two passages came to mind, one from Colossians. Two passages I've, I've actually used a lot. I'd never preached on these before coming to Cincinnati. I don't know why Jesus is like those. Uh, but these are the passages that he keeps bringing to mind for like every sermon that I do, so I'm sorry. Um, but here we are in Colossians 1 again. Speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. Notice the universal big language that Paul is very intentionally using here. All things. As in, I heard the joke once, in the Greek actually when you look at this it means all things. <laughs> like all of them. Like what things are not included. And he even, he even throws things. And, and in their context, like imagine what he, when he says dominions, rulers, powers, thrones. Who's on the throne in their world? What are the rulers and the dominions and the powers of their world? Caesar, Rome, empire. And he, and he says all things in this world, everything, all of it, everything that you have made is beautiful. Everything was made through Christ. Invisible things, visible things, material, immaterial, spiritual, physical, all things, things in heaven, things on earth. Rulers, powers, dominion, authority. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So all things were made through Christ and for Christ, and now in our present, all things are held together in Christ. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things. So past, all things were made through Jesus and for Jesus. Present, all things are held together in Jesus. Future, all things are being put together in Jesus. And Paul's really going after this. All of it. All of it, not just me in heaven and, you know, some glad morning when this life is over, I'll fly away. This world, this whole world, this whole good world, this whole broken world, all of it was made through Jesus, it's held together in Jesus, and it is being reconciled through Jesus. This is what God is doing. Whether we sing the hymns this morning or not, whether we acknowledge it or not, whether we surrender to the work or not, that is what God is doing in the world, Paul says. All of it. All of it. What, what part won't be redeemed? According to Paul, it's all being reconciled. Every last bit. Things in heaven, things on earth, visible and invisible, material and immaterial, spiritual and physical, all powers, rulers, authorities, dominions, it's all being redeemed through Jesus. Reconciled. Reconciled through Jesus. And through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. So the cross is about something bigger than just me and my personal salvation. The cross is about all of the cosmos. The whole cosmos is in relationship to what Jesus did on the cross and what God is doing through Jesus right now and forevermore. 
and what he's done from the very beginning. All of it, all things, past, present, and future, all of it, Jesus. Reconciliation. And you who were once estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled, there's that word again, in his fleshly body through death so that to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him, provided that you continue securely established and steadfast in faith, without shifting from the hope promised by the gospel that you heard which has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, I, Paul, became a servant of this gospel. So Paul wants to make sure he doesn't just stay in this abstract, universal, all things. Paul says, by the way, that's you too. You are included in all things. You, your name, your life, your family, your rebellion, your sin, your, your trauma, God's reconciling all things, and that includes you and me, all of us. It, it is a weird tension to live in a world where we know that all things were made through Christ and for Christ are being held together in Christ, and God is putting them all together in Christ, and yet to still have to deal with the brokenness, the injustice, the victimization, all the things, to live in this weird in-between space. We should just acknowledge that as we think about these things. It's a weird, feels weird. It feels like you're torn in two different directions. So it makes me think of another passage that I've used before recently, 2 Corinthians 5. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All of this is from God, who, here's this word again, reconciled. This thing that's happening inside of us, this is where Paul left off. Paul was In Colossians, Paul was talking about this cosmological reality, and then kind of closed this whole thing with a, and he's doing that in you. Now in Corinthians, at least the third letter he's written to Corinthians, he has this, we only have two, that's probably confusing, but he references a letter that we, never mind. He's written, so not his first letter is my point. Some later letter, Paul is now talking to the Corinthians about this same work that God's doing in you and me. We're being made new. The old has been put away and the new has come. And he uses the same word and the same theological idea, reconciliation. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. So now in Corinthians, Paul does something he didn't do in Colossians. He was talking about what God was doing in the cosmos and in you and I. But now in Corinthians, Paul says, that's also true, and he's looking for partners. So God is putting the whole world back together through Jesus, always has been, is right now, always will be. He's done that in you, and he passed on the work to you when he did. You've experienced reconciliation? Good, Jesus says, because I'm looking for help. And he passed and he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. 
It's not just that God's doing this work and like, oh yeah, I guess you can kind of take part two at the children's table. God has taken this ministry and says, I'm doing this in the world and I'm, I, not only am I looking for just like kind of like a, oh, that's cute partner, I'm looking for a real partner. I'm looking to entrust this work to my people. So we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. There's that word again. So, so Paul says, God's doing this work in us. Everything's being made new. He's passed this on to us. He's looking for partners. And he says, because of this, we are ambassadors, which means when people bump into the people of God, individuals, families, small groups, churches, institutions, whenever people pass through our spaces, our relationships, the thing, everywhere that we show up in the world, as people pass through, they should feel like this weird shift in the center of gravity. That what we've given ourselves to is about this cosmological reconciliation. Things are being pulled together to the way that they're supposed to be. Shalom is being brought to chaos. Goodness reigning in the world. Justice coming to injustice. Forgiveness coming, mercy, all of these things happening as people bump into our spaces, bump into our lives, pass through our spheres. We're ambassadors. When people meet us, they should get a little taste of what God's up to in the cosmos. When people interact with us, they should get a little taste of what God's up to in the cosmos. That's what we want UCC to be about, a group of people giving ourselves to this work of reconciliation. We will not be perfect. But as people pass through, through our little institutional sphere, will people sense that there is something restorative happening here? Something about the reconciliation of all things, whether things in heaven or things on earth, visible or invisible, material or immaterial, physical or spiritual, rulers, powers, dominions, authorities, domestic, international, wars, famine, reconciliation because God is putting the whole world back together if we believe this because we've experienced because he's putting my life and my heart back together then I have become an ambassador for this good news I have become an ambassador for this gospel so he says because of this I plead with you I what is it in the NRSV I entreat we entreat you that's a word I use every day we entreat you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him he might become the righteous of God. Jesus dove into our sin and our chaos. Jesus dove into our rebellion and our injustice so that he could take part in it. We too have to dive into our own reconciliation. We cannot just stand at a distance and be about the work of reconciliation. We cannot just stand at a distance and be about the work of justice. We have to actually be about the work of reconciliation in our own lives. It has to be something that we've truly experienced and are experiencing every day. And, and I don't know if this will come as a shock, but this is going to be this ongoing... It's not like you were reconciled way back when you got baptized and now... Yes, beautiful, bless God, glory, hallelujah, and still today, reconciliation happening all the time, because I don't know about you, but I've made some mistakes even this morning. It's the nature of how things operate. 
So you can't be about the work of reconciliation if you're not daily giving yourself to your own reconciliation. Okay? So that's a big thing. How in the world do I talk about that in the next 10 minutes? Can I give just a small little example? What I'm going to talk about is not the whole thing. I'm going to give us a small little example that I think really sheds light on some of the bigger work. I want to talk about interpersonal reconciliation. Because giving yourself to that is a part of what I think starts to change us and get, make us about, it, it starts to move us towards the cosmological. I love that word today, this morning, cosmos. There's something that happens when I can give myself on a, on a personal and interpersonal level. There's something that moves me to where I need to be on a cosmos level. So every year in the Jewish world, they move towards in the fall what they call the high holidays. It starts with either Rosh Hashanah or Yom Teruah, depending on which school of thought you come from, the Festival of Trumpets. They have eight days in the middle. It's called the Eight Days of Awe. And then the day of Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. And this eight to ten day period of time is a time given to introspection, reflection, confession, repentance. The Hebrew word for repentance is tshuva. Say tshuva. Tshuva means to turn but more importantly, to return. Like there is a path that God designed us. Every single one of us was born on a path, the path that God wanted us to be on. And we stray from that path. How many of us have heard the word repent and we're like, ooh, I don't like that word. The word for repent in the Hebrew means to, and we always love to talk about the Greek, I love the Hebrew, it means to come back. Come back to where God originally designed you to be. Acknowledge you've strayed off the path. And so there's this, this 10 days where they go about the work of con confession and repentance because on Yom Kippur, they're going to end up at synagogue all day. They are fasting. They don't bathe. Thank you for chuckling. That's going to be a crazy day at church. They're grumpy. And they come and they lay these prayers of confession and repentance. But prior to that, they've already done the work. You don't just show up on Yom Kippur and be like, okay, now I need to start repenting. You just spent 10 days doing the work so that when you show up at the day of Yom Kippur, you now are, you're experiencing the culmination of God's forgiveness because you've done the work. Okay, so what does Marty mean by do the work? Well, let's talk about reconciliation from that Jewish high holiday perspective. And I share this because I do believe it's very Jesus-y. Jesus being a Jewish rabbi, I do believe that this is very like, not just Jewish, I think this is us too. I think we can learn from this. I think you're going to see it immediately. There's a teaching that goes around almost every time, that, that time of year, every fall, where they talk about what does true tshuva look like. And there are at least five steps, and every time I've done this lesson, everybody goes, oh my goodness, that is one of the most helpful things I've ever heard. Five steps, not to like five secrets, to, no, no, no. But there are five steps to true tshuva. Here's the first one. The first step is admitting to the wrong. You have to be able to say out loud to others, I have participated in destructive, rebellious actions. I have done something wrong. I have done something wrong. We call that confession. And that's usually where Christian repentance stops. Thank you for mmming at that. <laughs> that is where Christian, we, we, that's, that's the work. In the Christian world, I confess, now I want to be forgiven. 
Now, I don't know about forgiveness. That's God's job in a whole other sermon. I'm not here to talk about forgiveness. I'm here to talk about what? Reconciliation. I don't know what happens with forgiveness, but Christians just stop there. We go, I, I admit that I've done something wrong, and now I'm forgiven, thanks be to Jesus, and let's move on. It's just, it's just the first step. It's just the first step. Second step. Acknowledge how this has hurt the other party. See, already on the second step, it's like, oh. Uh, we've done some work on this within our own organization, and it's like, this is the one where it's like, what do you mean? Well, you just said you've done something wrong, yes? Yeah? Okay, how has that wrong hurt other people? What do you mean? What do you mean, what do I mean? If you've done so, like we have this idea of sin that it's just like this thing that happens in my heart, it's between me and God, and it happens in a vacuum. Your sin never happens in a vacuum, ever. It always does something to the world around you and relationships. So if you've done something wrong, it's done something to others. It's, it's caused you to break, like they're, they, they've broken, you've broken trust with them. I'll use my own life. I have discovered over the last few years the way that I lead in my organization. I have these destructive, sinful parts of my personality that come out in my leadership. I have this impulsive reaction against incompetence where I just kind of like freak out and blow up and then I'm better like five minutes later. But you know what that five minutes does to my colleagues, my teammates? And you know what that, what that does to the organization when it trickles down through? What it does to my teammates is it says, I can't be trusted. It makes them doubt themselves. Like, I've literally watched my executives, like, not want to do things because they know that if they get it wrong, Marty's going to react. That's my sinful, destructive behavior. And it has impacted my entire team and their own well-being because would, do you want to go to work every day and feel like you're good at your job? Like, this isn't just some stupid, like, Marty blew up in a meeting. This impacts how I live every day. That's just a dumb little example, but it's a big one. Do you know what I mean? So I've done something wrong, and that wrong has done something to the world around me. Maybe it's caused physical damage. Maybe it's caused emotional damage. Maybe it's caused whatever. So that leads to the third part. When possible, make restitution and or repair. Sometimes you can't. Some things can't just, you can't write a check for emotional damage. You can write a check for therapy, by the way. And I'm not kidding. That wasn't a joke. Like, you can't be like, well, sorry, I can't, I can't repair feelings with money. You actually, you can do a lot, actually. That's tricky. When you can, repair what you can. Make restitution for what you can. Do what you can. This is Zacchaeus. Zaki was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. And Jesus invites, invites himself over to his house, and what does he come down and say? I will pay back four times the amount. What is he doing? He's doing Torah. He's saying, I'm going to restore and make sure I've gone above and beyond the restoration. It's, 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 uh, it's reparative interest. I made up that term. I've not read that anywhere. I reserve the right to take that term away. But there you go. So I'm, I've admitted that I've done something wrong. I've acknowledged how that wrong has actually impacted other people. And now third, I do whatever I can to put it back together, if at all possible. Do you see how this impacts conversations that we're having all the time on a cultural level? 
where we're all like, yeah, 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 we admit that that was bad. We just don't want to actually do anything about making it better. Can't we just admit that it was bad? Because it wasn't my fault. No, not if reconciliation is going to take place. And, and see, now I feel like, now we're kind of like seeing like, oh, this is huge. This has huge implications. Economic implications. Social implications. Relational implications. Yes. 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 By the way, this is both confronting for the times that we've hurt other people, and it's also totally reaffirming for all the times that we've experienced trauma or been a victim of something. Because if you've ever sat there and went, but they came and they told me they were sorry, but I didn't quite feel like something was right. Like they gave me a good apology, but I still felt like, you know what I'm talking about? I stopped getting nods, but this is what's wrong with celebrity apologies. Because they don't actually do the work of reconciliation. They just give word to the fact they've done something wrong. It's usually even a poor apology. But you've experienced it in this own life. Somebody came in heartfelt, like they, they gave you a heartfelt, I did something wrong and I'm sorry. But it still felt like it only got like to the tip of the iceberg because they never truly saw you. They never acknowledged the impact it had on your life. They never attempted to make anything better. Let's go to the next one. Identify steps that will be taken so this doesn't happen again. That's a big one. What am I going to do to make sure that I don't do this all over again? What are the steps that I'm going to make? When you tell somebody, when you say I've done something wrong and I've seen the impact that it's had on you and I've, I've done everything I can to make it right and here's what I'm doing to make sure it doesn't happen, you would feel seen. That would be a reconciliation that you would be like, oh, yeah, now we're, now we're talking. And then last but not least, change your behavior. And in the Jewish world, when all five things have taken place, and not a moment before, not a moment before, you have done tshuva. Not the first four. All five is when tshuva has taken place. I would say John the Baptist says this to the Pharisees. Why are you here, you brood of vipers? You go keep fruit in keeping with repentance, and then you come see me. Don't hold that to Christian baptism. That's, that's, a, that's a Jewish, uh, called Tavilat Tshuva. It's a baptism of repentance. It's a Jewish practice, not a Christian one. I just wanted to asterisk that. But John the Baptist is engaging in that same idea. I want to see true repentance, not just words. So you go change your behavior if this is what you really want to be about, and then you come back and see me. I'm not even sure where I'm at on time, but I know that I don't have time to keep going into all the things that I, all the things I want to talk about. To talk about Matthew 18 and the ways that we take that and abuse it and twist it into like weird institutional power dynamics. When was, when was the last time you heard Matthew 18 not instructed by the people at the top of a power pyramid? Yeah. Right? Like Matthew 18 being this, like it's supposed to be this interpersonal thing where you and I can make things right and be held accountable. But somehow it always gets leveraged by the top of a power pyramid to tell people what they need to do to stay in line. That's not why Jesus was teaching that. Where did that parable show up? Peter saying, how many times do I forgive my brother? It's this whole teaching on, it's this whole chapter on forgiveness, interpersonal relationships. Oh man, the story of Joseph, oh my goodness. The places where this shows up in the story of Joseph. Talk about dysfunctional here but not yet reality. Think about that family. 
Brothers want to kill each other. Well, one of the brothers. Sell them to Egypt. Right? Who's, whose idea was it to sell the brothers to Egypt? It was somebody's idea. One particular brother. Judah. It was Judah's idea. Reuben was trying to like figure it out. He was the firstborn. He knew what he had to do. Judah's idea is, hey, let's sell this guy. So they sell him to Egypt. Very next story. Genesis 38. Judah and Tamar. The weirdest story, if you're just reading through, you're like, what does this have to do with anything? I'm in the story of Joseph. Why am I reading this story about when Judah's older, and there's a story about Tamar, and if you remember the story, she dresses like a prostitute, he sleeps with her, and then she gets pregnant. He wants to have her burned at the stake, but she says, hey, guess who the father is? And what does he do? This is huge. What does Judah do? He doesn't do... He doesn't do, he's at the top of the power pyramid. Guys, if he wanted to make this thing go away, boom, gone. If he wanted to rise and fall of family of Israel, he could do that. He has all, all the pieces he needs to just sweep this thing under the rug, change his behavior on the own, not look bad. What does he do? He goes through those five steps of repentance in front of everybody. He says, nope. In front of everybody, he says, she is more righteous than I. Like, all five steps aren't necessarily there. We're, we're, we talk about his, how his behavior changes, what he does to take care of her. He never sleeps with her again. That's an act of justice. It probably feels weird to us, but it's an act of justice for her. Like, he totally... And then who becomes the hero of the Joseph story? Don't say Joseph. <laughs> it's Judah. Judah gets about the work of reconciliation. Judah has allowed himself to be transformed. And you know where he shows up throughout the rest of the story? Every time the story needs somebody to put their own life on the line for other people, Judah shows up. He shows up to his dad and is like, Dad, I know you don't want to send your brother, but I promise you I will put my life on the line for your son. This is my fault. He doesn't say that, but you can feel him going, I understand what I did wrong, and I'm a different person now. And he gets to Joseph, and there's the whole thing going on, and it goes back and forth, and the silver cup, and the money, and all that kind of stuff. And they just, I just want to keep Benjamin here, which would be great. Just keep Benjamin. The two brothers that love each other can be there. Everybody else can go back home. And Judah says, no, and he puts his own life on the line. And that, that movement, that self-sacrifice, he has become an ambassador for reconciliation. He's become an ambassador for Reconciliation. And that's what make jo that's, that is what makes Joseph go into another room, weep his eyes out, and write a different ending to a story. Because Joseph bumped into an ambassador for reconciliation. The old had gone away. A new had come. And we're like, oh, that's all pre-Jesus. Can you really say that? Yes, because from the very beginning, all things were created through him and for him. And in the present, they're all held together in him. And in the future, they're all being put together through him. So yes, it was Jesus. They just didn't know his name yet. Yeah. <laughs> this is the work of reconciliation. And, and, and I know that it's one thing to like read the story of Joseph. Guys, if you put yourself in that story, that is some traumatic, crazy, dynamic. Whew. Anybody have fam crazy family dysfunction? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> but I know you know what I'm talking about. I know you've been there. I know you've had a parent that mistreated you. I know that you've had some crazy divorce. I know... And yet you've gone through a transformation. 
And the relationships aren't just like, oh, yeah, you've gone through a transformation. We love Jesus, too. It's this long, grueling, showing up in key moments. That story of Joseph takes place over 34 years. It's easy to just read the story and go, story, 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 story. Those seven stories happened over 34 years. If you looked over 34 years of your life, do you think you got seven moments? See, that puts it in perspective. This is the long-haul stuff, the work of reconciliation. This isn't stuff you do by Thursday. This is stuff you do by the time you lay down at, your, at the head of your bed, Genesis says. And Jacob calls Joseph in and says, the story still isn't over, Joseph. Make sure you bury my bones in Canaan because Egypt is not where God wants us. It keeps going and it keeps going and it keeps going. And it's been carried and passed on for thousands of years to people like us and then carried and passed on for thousands of years to those of us sitting in this room today. This is the work. And so when you hear about mass shootings, different forms of brutality, this is the work. This is the work. And this is why Jesus has placed us here. And this is why we would gather together around bread and juice every week. Because this matters. And God's looking for partners. And I wouldn't think that he needs us, but for whatever reason, he said, I'd love to have you. Let's pray. God, uh, I talk about these things and I feel so, I, I feel so ill-equipped to do them as an individual. Because I'm so, it feels like I'm, I'm so shallow, I'm so selfish, my, my vision, my paradigm is so myopic. I, I'm given to, to too much idolatry in my own world. I... I need thee every hour, Jesus. Every hour I need thee. It helps God to think that it's not just me, that there's others that bear your name, that walk alongside of me in my life and in this room. It helps to know that there's a whole community, a body. We call it the body of Christ. Okay, well now I'm starting to get to, now I'm getting a little bit more hopeful. I know on my own I am despairing but maybe together but then I, I remember that this whole body is infused with your spirit that it's actually you going at work inside of us that it's you putting the world reconciling all things whether visible or invisible material or immaterial powers dominions rulers authorities all those things through Christ in us is somehow okay well now I still feel very small and inadequate, but maybe perhaps I'm a part of something that's real. So Jesus, my prayer this morning would be that we would surrender to that. We know full well that we will be distracted as individuals, as an institution, as a church, as groups of people, as families. We'll be distracted. We'll forget I suppose it's helpful that we would still have one practice remaining to talk about as a church, and that's the practice of remembering. That's going to be important because we're going to forget. 
So help us to remember, but help us to surrender. Paul said to the Corinthians, we entreat you, we plead with you, be reconciled to God. God, would you call us to our own reconciliation? Just like Judah. So that through that experience, we would become agents, ambassadors of reconciliation, ministers of reconciliation in the world around us. We would change our workplaces, we could change our communities, we could pull together to make quilts and raise money and do all kinds of stuff and show up for workshops and make the world a better place, bring shalom to people's chaos, help us to surrender to the work that you're doing in us. Keep us from trying to tag you along to the work that we think we're doing. God, save us. Thank you for saving us, but save us again and again and again and again. And redeem us and reconcile us and continue to make all things new. Jesus, we love you and we are yours. Thank you for your faithfulness when we are faithless. Thank you for your forgiveness and your mercy when we fail you. Help us to be reconciled to you. We pray all this in the resurrected name of Jesus. Amen.